Tonight, we're going to do part two of our series, Not Drunk, looking at Acts chapter two. And it comes from that chapter, because in that chapter, when the Ruach fell on the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, on that Shavuot, on that day of Pentecost, uh, they had to kind of go outside of their comfort zones. They had to be bold. They had to speak God's word. And when they did that, a few of the other people joked with them that they might be drunk and things like that. And as we follow God, as we want to be people who experience Shavuot every day of our lives, God is calling us to go beyond our comfort zones, to maybe go beyond where our inhibitions have been, to experience the life that he has for us. And that's what we want to do. And so we're looking at part two of Not Drunk. And in this, in this section, we're going to look at those verses where they began to speak in tongues. And the topic specifically for tonight on part two is that the work of Yeshua, the work of his spirit, and the work that we are called to do is to reverse the curse. It's interesting that in Acts 2, when they speak in tongues, it's a little bit different than any other time in Scripture where we see people speaking in tongues, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 14, like we looked at last week, when people spoke in tongues, you could only do it in the congregation if there was someone who had an interpretation so they could explain it to the congregation. So somebody speaks in tongues, somebody interprets, everybody else understands. But that's not what happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 120 men and women, all the disciples are gathered together. The Ruach comes upon them and they speak in tongues. And miraculously, all the Jewish people from all over the Middle East listening immediately understand what they're saying. It's as if everybody in the crowd immediately gets the gift of interpretation. And if you turn to Acts chapter 2, we're going to unpack what happens here and how God is reversing the curses that have been on humanity ever since the fall. And so in Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn with me there. And uh, if you don't have a physical Bible with you, you can log on to the Shoresh David Wi-Fi and download from your app store the TLV Bible app. And you're not going to regret that. And you can look it up on your phone uh, here or at home. But in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 5. And it says... Now Jewish people were staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound came, the crowd gathered. They were bewildered because they heard them speaking in their own language. They were astonished and amazed, saying, Are all these who are speaking, aren't they Galileans? How is it that we hear them in our own birth language? And it goes on to mention a bunch of people, Perithians, Medes, Elamites, those are people, Jewish people who came from modern day uh, Iraq and Iran. It says people living in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. So modern day Turkey. And it says Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya towards Cyrene and visitors from Rome. And so these are areas in uh, northern Africa and, the, and uh, in, in Europe. And so basically... Jewish people had gathered from all over the Middle East, from all over the Mediterranean, both on the European and African side, and they all hear them speaking in tongues, and all of them understand at the exact same time. They don't need an interpreter. This never happens anywhere else in Scripture except in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. So if you want to turn with me over to Genesis chapter 11, we're going to look at the Tower of Babel, 
and see how what what happened on Shavuot was God reversing the curse. And we're going to see how God wants to reverse the curse in our lives. And as we look at this, we're going to see that God wants us to move from cliques into synergy and from pride into redemption and and to move from lies into the love of God. And as we will see this, as God reverses the curse. And so in Genesis chapter 11, it says in verse 1, Now all the earth had the same language and the same vocabulary. They all understood each other. And then it says in verse 5, Adonai came down and he saw that all of the sons of man, all of humanity had gathered together in one purpose to exalt themselves above God and to build a tower. And so he says, look at all the people have done because they are one and all of them have the same language. So this is what they have begun to do. And now anything they plan to do, nothing will be impossible for them. And so come, let us come down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other's languages. And then in verse 9, it says, this is why it's named Babel because Adonai confused the languages of the entire world. It's interesting. It says he confused the languages. It doesn't say he created all the different languages. It says he confused the languages. And so what's interesting as we look at this verse, we're going to see that in Genesis chapter 10, everybody understood each other. They were on the same page. What's interesting about this is that if you look at this in context, this is Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Okay, right after it, it's going to talk about the genealogy of Abraham, and it introduces us to Abraham. That's right after the Tower of Babel. If we look right before in Genesis chapter 10, it's also genealogies. It puts it in the middle of these genealogies. And then, right before we get to the Tower of Babel, it's interesting, it talks about different languages. It talks about Noah having three sons, Hem, Sham, and Japheth. And it talks about them, and again and again, after it names each of Noah's sons and grandsons and and great-grandsons, it says, these are the ones, according to his language, according to their families, and according to their nations. Genesis chapter 10 introduces us to a diversity of languages, ethnicities, and people groups. And then in Genesis chapter 11, it says they all had the same language and all the same vocabulary. So we can look at this one of two ways. We can either say, okay, these are a bunch of ancient stories and myths that OCD Jewish scribes kept on writing down and preserved, but there's really no method to the madness of the, of the order of these hodgepodge of stories that were put together, and the exact words don't matter because it was just you know, oral tradition and stuff like that. You could take that approach. Or if we're going to take the approach that this is the eternal and errant word of God. It means that everything here has a purpose. It means that when it uses the word confused, there's a reason. And when it puts the diversity of languages and cultures and ethnicities before the Tower of Babel, it's there for a reason. So if we as a congregation take a look and say, God, we want to trust that your word is inspired, that you inspired people to write it, and you preserved it for us today, then it's amazing what we see here in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Because what we see is that at the Tower of Babel, the curse wasn't diversity, but the curse then became division. It became racism and ethnocentrism. 
it means that the Tower of Babel is not that God disrupts humanity by creating culture and ethnicities, but by confusing them so they can't understand each other, so that we can no longer connect. And so what God is doing here in Genesis 10:11 is he's saying at that moment, humanity lost its ability to connect, to understand each other. In the Hebrew, where it says they had one language and one vocabulary, it's echad. Same word to describe God, a complex unity. It's as if that, that before the Tower of Babel, they spoke different dialects, that it had diversity in languages and culture, but they could still understand each other just like in Acts 2. And, but then after the Tower of Babel, then humanity was cursed and we lost our ability to be united as one, divided. And in Acts chapter 2, God is revealing his heart. As they're speaking in all of these different languages, they can all understand each other, just like before the Tower of Babel. And the interesting thing is in Acts 2, God didn't have to do it that way. He could have done any miraculous or supernatural sign to catch their attention. And then Peter could have spoke like he did in Hebrew and Aramaic. And because these were devout religious Jews, they understood the Hebrew, right? At least umpakito, at least a little bit. Enough that they could understand the message that Peter was telling them to turn to Yeshua. So he could have just spoken to them in Hebrew. But God is specific and he has them speak in all of the different languages. God is revealing that his heart is that the curse would be reversed and that all of humanity could come together as one race adopted into the family of God. That's God's heart that he reveals in Acts chapter 2. But it's not like that this is just something new with Christianity, new in the New Testament that God doesn't care about before. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Because if we look back at Genesis, Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. And then what's right after that? He introduces us to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, my desire is to bless you and to form you into a great nation so that your seed can bless all the nations of the earth. Right after the Tower of Babel, from the beginning, God's heart in creating the Jewish people and sending this Messiah, his promise to Abraham from the start was that through his nation, through his seed, through the Mashiach, we could be united as one people again in the family of God. It's been God's heart that we would move from cliques to synergy. And it's not that as we come together and say, hey, I have, this, I have this and this is different than you, we erase those differences. But that as we come together with those differences, it creates a synergy. As I was looking at Acts chapter 2 this week, one thing that stuck out to me is that they, as they hear them speaking in their own languages, they say, wait a second, aren't these guys Galileans? They could still recognize their accent, Right? Sometimes uh, when my dad talks or when I get super excited, you can catch a little bit of New York, a New Yorker accent, right? And we got different accents in the congregation. God gives them the ability to speak in all of these different languages so they can be united, but he doesn't take away their uniqueness and differences. He doesn't erase their accent. He brings it all together. And as all of these people from all these nations come together, there's this synergy and power that's created. God, that's why God had the Tower of Babel. Because when we come together there in unity, there is power. And God wants us to move from cliques to synergy. That whatever things have caused us to just gravitate to other people because of common interests or common viewpoints and different stuff, and we're uncomfortable with other people being different in other areas, 
God is calling us to move from cliques to synergy, where we appreciate our God-given ethnicity, culture, and differences and come together in unity to express all the different multifacetedness of God. And so that's God's heart, that we would move from cliques to synergy. But then as we do that, to reverse the curse fully, the next thing we got to do is to move from pride to redemption. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is speaking, Peter is not into replacement theology. Peter's Jewish. He's not anti-Semitic. He affirms the fact that the Jewish people are God's chosen people, his beloved, that he's never going to forsake them, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Peter gets that. And yet, as he's talking to them in Acts chapter 2, he tells them this. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua Hanatsrati, Yeshua of Nazareth, a man authenticated to you by God with mighty deeds and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Yeshua was handed over by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, nailed to an execution stake by hand, by the hand of lawless men, you killed him. But God raised him up, releasing him from the pains of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by it. He says, nobody took Yeshua's life. He gave it freely according to God's predetermined hand. And yet he's calling his Jewish people to say, we sinned. We rejected the Messiah. When Peter is speaking to them on Shavuot, it's one of the three feasts where the Jewish men would gather from across the world to Jerusalem to worship God. It was on Shavuot was the second time of the year they do that. The first time was on Passover. And on that year, on that Passover, the religious leaders and a mob that they assembled brought Yeshua to the Romans and executed him for a death he did not deserve. And so he was executed by lawless men. And yet what Peter is saying to them is, listen, you are God's people. You are the people that he has chosen. And yet we need to acknowledge our guilt that we have rejected Messiah. And the only way to redemption is to acknowledge that we made a mistake to let go of pride, to acknowledge and take responsibility for our sin and to turn to God. And then remission of sins, times of refreshing will come. In order to receive redemption, in order to see the curse reversed in our lives, we have to let go of pride. For the Jewish people at this time, it meant they had to acknowledge that they rejected Messiah and that they would embrace him. But it's not just a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. That pride keeps us from turning to God. The scriptures tell us in the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And for us to come together in unity, in order for us to experience redemption, we have to be let go of pride. For me and my family, I'm, I'm Jewish on my dad's side, Indian on my mom's side. And I appreciate my Indian heritage and love it so much. But I have to, with my Indian heritage, lay down ethnic pride and allow God to redeem my identity. Because as much as good there is in Indian culture, as much as there is in my being you know, proud about my family heritage, my family are Rajputs. So they come from a line of warriors and kings in India 
who came in, and when they came in thousands of years ago, they pushed all of the indigenous, darker-skinned people to the south of India and enforced them in the lower levels of the caste system. That's what my people did in India. And so for me, I know it's not just history because the curses of that generational sin is still upon the family. I can see in the family, there is still struggles that our family has with elitism. That we're better than other people because we work harder or educated or because of career success. There are still struggles with colorism that we're better than other Indians who are of darker skin. And what God is saying is not to reject my Indian identity and heritage because it's from God, but that to, to lay down my pride and allow him to redeem my identity. Peter says to them in Acts chapter 2, he says again later in the verse, he says to them that therefore let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, this Yeshua whom you had crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When he says Lord, he's saying kurios and Christos in the Greek for Lord and Messiah. When he says Lord, he means the one who created the heavens and the earth. And when he says Messiah, he means the one who brings redemption. And so what God has called me to say is, God, you are my creator and my redeemer. My identity comes from you. And I'm called to lay down pride and allow you to redeem my identity. As followers of Yeshua, laying down and letting go of pride and receiving redemption is not just a one-time thing. But in every area of life, our lives that we want redeemed by God, we have to lay down pride. In the, uh, in the program High Life that we have here, High Life, uh, we look at six different areas of life for training up the boys in leadership and character. It has to do with faith, fitness, finances, future and career success, fun and hobbies. And in every area of life, we have to lay this down for God. The struggle that we have as followers of Yeshua is to say, God, I cannot take pride in my faith that somehow I'm smarter than other people that I've discovered Yeshua. I can't take pride in the level of spiritual understanding that I've reached. That I can't take pride in fitness or in good looks. That it, it, we can't take pride in career success and how high our finances and bank accounts are. But that God is looking us to realize that everything we have is a gift from him by grace. Even our intelligence or our work ethic. That nothing can be boasting, but all is done by the grace of God so that his name can be exalted. And God is calling us that in every area of our life that we want redeemed, to lay down pride and to turn to him for redemption. Because that is what Yeshua came to do. To unify us and to bring us this redemption. And so we need to move from cliques to synergy. We need to move from pride to redemption. And the only way to do that is to move from lies to the love of God. And as Jillian comes, us, comes up to lead us in worship, I just invite you to take this as a time of reflection. That the only way we're able to not allow ourselves to become prideful, that the only way that we don't take security in clicks is if we're able to embrace the love of God. Rabbi Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That when we are overwhelmed and overtaken by the love of God, that liberates us to release the things that we have taken security in, to release the things that we have held on to in pride, and to turn to him, 
to experience his redemption. And so today, as we continue in worship, I want to open up to you that this is an invitation that God wants us to experience Shavuot every day. He wants us to experience that kind of ethnic unity and unity of all types. He wants us to experience redemption in every area of our life. And that only comes by turning to him, embracing the full family of God, of laying down our guilt, and being overwhelmed by the love of God. And so I'm going to pray for us that we have a fresh and deeper revelation of that love. Father, I thank you that we love you because you first loved us. God, that you proved your love for us in Yeshua's death and resurrection, that he held nothing back, that he endured torture, humiliation, crucifixion, and rejection so that we could be embraced by the Father and adopted into your family. And God, we ask that your love would fill us, that we would be filled with the fullness of God, and that we would lay down the security of this world and the pride of this world to receive the better gifts and life that you have for us through the death and resurrection of our Messiah. In his name, amen.